Thought I was going to sneeze there. adventure here into season three i think it should be noted right away that we're uh we're dawning upon the horizon of a whole new era of music something you all know and probably take for granted at this point the eras that we will discuss during season three it's nothing but a shining yet to come on the horizon yeah we're talking about rock and roll but really tonight we're talking about big mama thornton thank you for coming out tonight i'm pat i'm in thank you for listening to do check out the song as always, uh, feels really good on the first episode of the third season. Hell yeah, dude! All right, so let's uh, let's let's not fuck around. Like, get, let's break down with this Big Mama Thornton. All right, well, Big Mama Thornton was born Willie Mae Thornton on December eleventh, nineteen twenty-six, outside of Monterey in rural Arrington, Alabama, and she was born to Thomas H. Thornton and Edna M. Richardson Thornton. Edna M. Richardson Thornton. Yep. That's a tongue twister of a name. <laughs> That's why I said it slow. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have come out. And then Thornton. <laughs> so what year is this? 1926. Oh, yeah. Let's see, see, we're getting to the point where people are going to be born in the 20s now. We don't have those 1800s birthdays anymore where you're going to start saying people are born in 1992. I know. Thank God. Yeah, right? I screwed that so many times <laughs> that you guys don't know about because I deleted it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> you always remember, Pat. Well, and so she was one of at least four siblings. And her father was a minister, and her mother sang in the church choir. So Willie Mae grew up singing in the church. She, oh, yeah. Yeah. She learned how to play drums and harmonica, perhaps from her brother, who was an, considered an outstanding player, later to be known as Harp Thornton. <laughs> Harp Thornton? That was yeah. a, uh, nice. I do the air quotes, but nobody can see me. Yeah, well, I saw it. <laughs> but unfortunately, when Willie Mae was 14, her mom died. That's super sad. Yeah. And so to help support the family, she ended up having to take a job cleaning at a local saloon. You said 13? 14. 14? Yep. I'm glad that the first job she went for was cleaning in a saloon. Like, 14-year-old, what are you going to do? I don't know, probably working in an alcohol establishment. Yeah, well, it was pretty good for her because of this job. She would end up actually substituting for the regular singer from time to time. Oh, yeah, she's like, she was the backup. Yep. <laughs> this, the cleaning girl who, if the singer didn't show up, get the cleaning girl up there to sing. <laughs> <laughs> and so the accounts of how she ended up attracting this promoter named Sammy Green, you know, they vary. One version is he heard her win first prize in a local amateur contest. But another is she helped his artists move a piano up the club stairs. <laughs> well, that's that was how she was recruited. Yeah, like, I, 
Maybe she was like singing while she were, uh, you know, moving this piano up the stairs. <laughs> yeah, she still got pipes, even though she's carrying a fucking <laughs> piano. He's like, I need this lady. Yeah. She sounds good even when she's working. Yeah, she's got a piano overhead, like, yeah. Well, in any event, in 1941, she ended up joining Green's Georgia Bay show, The Hot Harlem Review, and would remain with him for five years. One thing I don't understand, why do they always call them like they're from Harlem? <laughs> they're from Georgia. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's, I think it's just because they're black. And, I, you know, we ran into this so many fucking times already. They literally sell people based on, like, this guy's just this skin color, so he must play good music. Like, yeah, it's and, fucking ridiculous. And clearly we got to say they're from Harlem. Yeah, like, exactly. oh. it, it, it builds the theme. Uh, like, I don't know. They're, they're a bunch of fucking assholes. Now, Big Mama Thornton, I'm just going to start calling her that from now on because this can get confusing calling her Willie Mae. Yeah. Big Mama Thornton was billed as the new Bessie Smith, and she sang and danced throughout the southeastern United States. You know, she would acknowledge at some point that she would be influenced by Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, and Memphis Minnie, you know? Yeah, two of those three people we actually have episodes about if you didn't listen to those, so. Yep, episode number two. Yeah, second episode. That's bringing me back to nostalgia era. (laughs) We're all black and white and grainy and there's sepia everywhere. But with this, she didn't feel like she was getting enough notoriety. So in 1948, Miss Thornton, she left the review and moved to Houston, Texas, where she would contribute to the development of the Texas blues sound. Oh, Texas blues. Yeah. And, you know, she would get helped out by the likes of, say, Lightning Hopkins, Lowell Fulson, Junior Parker, Clarence Brown. I mean, just Lightning Hopkins alone, you know, the fact that he took interest in her is pretty fucking amazing. Yeah, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't Texas Blues kind of that that heavy distortion lead guitar style? Yeah, like very. A, the, 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 the lot of bends, like, wee, wee. Yeah, and it's like very 12-bar. Yeah. Very 12-bar blues-driven. But, yeah, it's just a dirtier sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, some of the examples that we listened to tonight gave me a lot of the uh, that headway. Yeah, we'll get to those later on in the episode, too. But it was during this time she would end up working with two producers, band leader Johnny Otis, but most importantly, a flamboyant black entrepreneur named Don Roby. Now, Roby reportedly heard Miss Thornton in Houston's El Dorado Ballroom and was impressed with her ability to play multiple instruments. A rare thing for female singers at the time. Wait, so she could play multiple instruments? Yeah. That's fucking awesome. And so he would end up signing her to a five-year contract with his Peacock record label. Peacock record label. Yeah. Now that's a record label name. And obviously, this was independent. It would end up later being called Duke Peacock, but it was known for gritty rhythm and blues, gospel. It was very important on soul music and rock and features artists such as Mary Adams, Johnny Ace, and even a young Little Richard. Oh, shit. So they were very progressive then. Oh, yeah. They were hip, you could call it. Yeah, they were, they were up with the times. Now, there was some tension between Roby and Miss Thornton. She was a lesbian. He didn't like that too much. Didn't think you could sell it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well... I don't even have a snarky enough comment to say about that guy. 
Right. We'll just, we'll, let's shuffle them into the asshole spotlight. And then I'm just not even going <laughs> to yeah, think there, about there, that there's, comment there's anymore. Our, there's our asshole spotlight. For, <laughs> yeah. Well, this is our minor asshole spotlight. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, sorry. Your sexual orientation doesn't do anything for my capitalism, so I'm not okay with it. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. Moving on. But despite her lesbianism, he would end up producing her first record and started setting up a regular performance schedule for her in his Houston club, The Bronze Peacock. So he named his club the Bronze Peacock? Yep. With the Peacock label? Dude, yep. I, this guy literally wore peacock feathers at some point. I'm not even going like, to... I, I really hope so. I can guarantee... It's, it said he was flamboyant. Oh, so. yeah. He's walking around with peacock feathers. I guarantee it. And he would even end up getting her on this performance trail known as the Chitlin Circuit. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Chitlin Circuit, which I certainly was not before doing this research... <laughs> yeah, that's weird. I have no idea what it is. It is a string of clubs and venues that covered the eastern and southern United States and were considered safe for African-American musicians to play in. They range from the Cotton Club in New York's Harlem neighborhood to local juke joints in Mississippi. So pretty much anywhere racist piece of shits were not like, fuck you, you can't play here. Yeah, no. So that's that's really fucked up. Like, these are the safe places where you all can go your enjoy your life and play your music. Right. Other, but where people probably won't fuck you And up. also kind of make a living probably, yeah. too. Jesus. And so she would end up spending much of the early 50s on the road or recording with Roby or Johnny Otis when in Houston or L.A., and in 1952, she traveled to New York City with the Otis Show to play the famed Apollo Theater, where she initially served as a, the opening act for R&B artists Little Esther Phillips and Mel Walker, but soon was promoted to headliner, also where she earned the nickname Big Mama. Oh, hell yeah. So now we don't have to worry about the naming. Now you can just call her Big Mama after Now this. she's Big Mama. Well, that's cool. But that's actually really awesome. Like, you can tell that she just won it by sweat equity, too. Because when you start at the bottom and then within a short amount of time, they're like, no, you're the you're the headliner. You're a badass. Like, you earn that stuff. Yeah. Well, and I think it's funny. She ended up opening for someone nicknamed Little. And then they ended up nicknaming her Big Mama and then making her headline. Yeah. No, sorry. Get out of here, Little. Big Mama's in the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually pretty awesome. In August, at a recording session in Southwest Los Angeles, she was approached by the young songwriter team of Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, guys who would end up becoming rock and roll legends of their own. They offered her a 12-bar blues vocal called Hound Dog, which she liked and paired on a single of her own called They Call Me Big Mama, on the B and she put that on the B-side. Wait, so what's the name of this song? Hound Dog. Is this the song? This is this is the, the song that I'm thinking. This, this is, is ain't nothing but a hound dog. Ain't nothing uh, but a hound uh, dog. Uh. Yep. And her version of Hound Dog was laden with open sexual references, whoops, and barks, and was released nationwide in 1953, and soon topped the R&B charts. I'm confused why whoops and uh, dog barks are alongside profanity. It was a weird thing at the time. <laughs> nobody nobody went, whoop, whoop, oh, oh, oh. I mean, it was different, I guess you could say. Is that, so does that have, like, something to do with, like, Tom and Jerry? Because they always have, like, that the character who makes that, like, whooping dog noise, like, in Tom and Jerry. <laughs> Is that supposed to be, like, discourteous? And, like, maybe I just never got that reference, and that's. 
I think it was just new at the time. Huh. Is all it was. People hadn't whooped before. No, I mean maybe while the person was singing, but never on the microphone, right? Yeah, no, you don't whoop back at us. We whoop at you. <laughs> and now this side of Hound Dog ended up selling two million copies. What? Yeah, two million copies. That's fucking huge. Yeah. Compared to how much she got paid, anyway. She got 500 bucks for that. <laughs> she didn't get paid per copy? Nope. Oh, my God. Even people before this were totally getting per copies, and so she got screwed over. And this is in contrast to the man who would make this famous in 1956, Elvis Presley. Oh, my, yes, we know. Ugh. And, you know, he refined the version, you know, made it safe for wide audiences. And it brought him both fame and fortune. And this is probably the most notable example of the inequity that often exists when a black artist would be covered by a white artist. Yeah. I mean, how fucking crazy is that? Elvis got fame and fortune. She got dick. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. I mean, it's like and, her and version how many, was way better, too. I yeah. don't understand how... Her performance is amazing. Yeah. In all of the tracks we listen to, like her her style and presence is just outrageous. Yeah, she's got she's got that grit, but she's got that loud, booming vocal. Like just, oh, oh yeah. it's amazing too. And that's what and when I read this, it really pissed me off because it's like I'd never heard of her before. And the only reason we covered her is because she did this song. She was the original one to do it. Yep. And Elvis Presley fucking stole that shit. And and it was only a few years later, right? It was three years later. Three years. Like, we were just talking, we talked about that previously in another episode where. Uh, uh, the House of the Rising House Sun. House of the Rising Sun, yeah, where we thought the gap was bigger, but when it's only a few years and, like, somebody comes up with something like that and present, you know, and plays something like that and somebody more, like, culturally acceptable comes along. And I put that in fucking quotation marks. <laughs> like, you get, I'm not, I don't want to talk about it, but like when stuff like that happens, it's just ridiculous. Like what the fuck? And in some cases, you know, with house of the rising sun, it's not that big of a deal. Cause you know, the animals did it in rock and roll, which right. wasn't done ever previously. In yeah. This is, roll. this is a way different situation. Yeah. It was just a blatant rip off. She probably didn't get any royalties for it. It was piracy. And Elvis Presley just took it and just made millions or however he ended up making enough to be rich and famous back then. Yeah, I mean, for being, you know, the king of rock and roll and all that, I don't really hear a lot of good stuff about Elvis Presley. We might have to do an episode on him. I haven't actually ever found any evidence of him actually writing his own song. I think it's always been written by someone else or he stole someone else's version. I truly believe that. I, If, if you guys know of one... Please send it in because oh, I'm sure, I really I'm sure don't. there is, or at least, you know, is it is recorded that way one way or the other, but I don't know. I don't want to get into Elvis bashing, but we'll not, save that not, for, we'll save that for another episode. You're not looking so good in a lot of angles there, Mr. Elvis. And so on that note, brings me to my first dude, check out this song. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Both of those songs, actually, Hound Dog and They Call Me Big Mama. I think my whoop was really lame. Your whoop was really lame. <laughs> it was like a like an animal in the woods. It wasn't like an excited person <laughs> in a concert. The ICP fans would really not respond to that. Yeah, no, not at all. But the, the owls, the owls thought that was, that was head on. <laughs> And so even though she did Hound Dog and this was like really a rock and roll song, I mean, let's be honest, it was really, 
it was pretty much a rock and roll song. She sang rhythm and blues. And unfortunately, R&B was soon to be eclipsed by the growth of rock and roll. Everything was about to be eclipsed by the growth in rock and roll. That's true. The music industry is about to increase by its entire diameter (laughs) multiple times because of rock and roll. And there's going to be millions of screaming chicks going, ah! More whooping ah. than you have ever heard. <laughs> you, guys are, you guys didn't like whooping before? Oh, there's going to be so much whooping. So much whooping. Well, and so obviously because of this, her career ended up slowing down in the mid-1950s. And by this time, she was in her 30s. You know, probably not considered all that cool, not young, not hip, you know, whatever. And her... Agreements with both Roby and Otis expired, and in the late 1950s, she ended up moving to San Francisco to perform with her old friend Clarence Brown, a former Peacock artist. And so, obviously, with no contract or regular band, she ended up having to go through some difficult years. But, you know, with the mid-60s, along with the folk revival, there was also a blues revival. and. Artists like Bob Dylan, somehow I snuck him in there again, yes. Yep, just got to throw out the BD real quick. Eric Clapton, the Rolling Stones, you know. Blues were a hip-hopping and happening thing again. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of uh, a lot of blues artists are rediscovered in the 60s. We already covered that with, like, uh, Mississippi Sun- John Hurt and We Sun haven't House. covered Mississippi John Hurt. Well, but we have talked We talked about it during the Sun House episode. I guess that's true. And with her living in San Francisco, you know, the Bay Area kind of became like a hub of blues activity at the time, too. That makes a lot of sense. And, well, so what year? She born 1921, so she's not even that old in the 60s either. No, well, she really isn't. 1926. Oh, 1926 is when she's born? Yeah, she's yeah. not even too old in the 60s at all. It's not even, it's negligible. So she still could rock probably at that point. I wonder how many of the recordings we have are from the 60s versus what, like, I know that the stuff we listened to tonight was most of our original recordings. Yeah, it, a lot of the stuff we listened to was kind of a mix and match just because it was hard to find what came exactly from what recording and blah, blah, blah. But you can really tell the difference between her early career and her later career because her later career is much more produced. It's bigger sounding. And much more traditional blues than a lot of a lot of the other stuff. And you know, like so, one of the things that we're trying to do with the third season here is we're we're starting to build our foundation. And the eventuality is, you know, we're going to continue to move forward, and we're going to continue to kind of cover these people who really didn't get the spotlight that they deserved, you know, early in their career. But really, what we're doing is we're building on to the eventuality of rock and roll here, because you know, there's nowhere for us to go. Yeah, you know, it, no we've already what, gone electric at this point. Yeah, exactly. Get over it. Yeah, so we're about to pull the real Bob Dylan now that I'm Judas. Yeah, I'm, I'm mentioning about Bob Dylan again, but we're gonna we're gonna pull him. We're gonna go electric, and eventually we're gonna cover some actual rock and roll. But these first few episodes, and you know, the first probably the rest of this season is going to build just a strong foundation of who provided the building blocks, and so. I kind of want to take a second and talk about what this really provided, like a building block for rock and roll. And we listened to a track earlier that I can't honestly say like the composition I had heard anything during that or like up into that era that sounded so like the dark version of rock and roll almost. Right. What was the name of that track? That song was called I Smell a Rat. Yeah. So, I mean, 
we'll throw just the word, just that name in and of itself, you know, it's going to be a dark song. Yeah, exactly. So by all means, uh, we'll throw this right on the dude. Check out that song. Uh, I smell a rat. It's got. Oh, you hit, you hit me with that early. All right. Yeah. Well, you know what? Whatever. Uh, really, the the thought is when I was listening to this song is. Compared to the rest of her works, her, the rest of her works come off very blues and have a couple where, uh, especially with the the other one where she has that uh, that heavy rock and roll uh, theme, the Big Mama. Oh yeah, the the kind of jazzy vibe to it. Yeah, what was the name of that? That song? one was "They Call Me Big Mama." Yeah, they call me Big Mama, and the the they call me Big Mama essentially has like the classic rock and roll uh, like vocal pattern. Oh yeah, in fact, that melody you can tell has been ripped off by the '50s rock and roll guys like several times. Yeah, no, and exactly like I I honestly. I don't personally have any knowledge of any song that has like that vocal pattern previous to this, but there are 500 songs in the next 10 years that are going to sound different, but have this exact same vocal pattern. Oh yeah. Like, so I mean that vocal pattern is still sung to this day. Yeah, exactly. So if you want to, if you like as like mimicking classic, uh, rock and roll and stuff, you'll always kind of get that, that classic, uh, I don't know, rock and roll. I don't even know what to call it. It's like a, it's like a rhyming structure, but it's also kind of just like a. It's a vocal melody. I a, mean, yeah. it's it's that ro- rockabilly vocal yeah. melody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's that very typical, like fifties rock and roll vocal melody. I mean, that's that's what it is. It's like this, literally the grid pattern to what all those white musicians did when they made rock and roll safe. Yeah, and, and it, in fact, it comes even, from a black blues lady. Yeah. Like, and in fact, she even says rock and roll in that song multiple times, too. Yeah, back when the term was just being coined. Yeah, it exactly. It wasn't even the style of music yet. They were still compiling the, the terms rock and the comp- terms roll together to eventually be what rock and roll really would be. And, and then we got uh, I Smell a Rat. And if you really listen to that, like that's got, like I said, the darker rock and roll tones. Like The first thing that I thought, I was listening to it for like five or ten seconds, and I'll immediately I'm like, this... This has intonations of just dark rock and roll. Like I feel, I felt almost like Tom Waits in there. Like just, I was wondering if you're going to mention him. I, you know, I, I got it. It's, it's my Bob Dylan. I can't mention him every episode, but I'll still find a way to mention Tom Waits I every think, once in a while. Is that the first time we've mentioned Tom Waits in it, this series? It might be. It might not be. And I'm not going to try and uh, review that right now to think about it. But either way, uh, here's your shout out, Tom Waits. Uh, but seriously, the the way that the the mix comes through and like the the way that I don't know, just the the guitar takes a back step, but also is still so forward. It it really makes the mix come together like rock well, and roll. It it still sounds like a big band, but with an electric guitar in the mix. Yeah, which exactly. is like way different than everything we everything else we've ever covered to this point, because. There was no electric guitar on anything else we've covered, really. Yeah, no, I think this is actually the first episode that features an electric guitar for yep. us. Besides House of the Rising Sun. Because I guess that's true. We, we did we, we did cover that. We talked about the animals enough in there to where that kind of counts, but the animals weren't the subject. And so, back to the rediscovery of Big Mama. You know, as I spoke before, she didn't have regular support, you know. Nothing backing her at all, really. No record label, nothing. Despite this, she was invited to the Monterey Jazz Festival 
1965 ended up touring Europe with the American Folk Blues Festival, an unusual honor for a female artist. Yeah, it was mainly male artists. Well, and that's funny too, because that's 1965. We we made the Judas joke, but this is the year where electric music really starts to be a thing. Yeah, like 1965 is the year when multiple different bands pick up an electric persona. And I mean, you know, we 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 always make too many jokes about Bob Dylan, but literally, dude grabs an electric guitar, and half of his half of his fan base hates him for it because of this whole like 1965. And that was at what the Newport Festival or something like that. I can't. I remember. think you're right on that. I want I want to say you're right. And in fact, there's so many rumors about one guy wanting to chop the uh, the electricals yep. covering uh, that's amping all of his stuff. Yeah. And it's so I really but find 1965 to be a very influential year for rock and roll yeah. in general. Well, because right before that, it was like we want to rediscover the roots and blah blah blah. Rock and roll's taking over everything. What are you gonna do? Well, obviously you're gonna go back in time and play older style music. And then all of a sudden, all of these artists that wanted this old sound were like, "Nah, the electric blues is pretty awesome. Like, let's do that." Yeah, but they, I honestly think that they also like. It's like a merging of the two because there was that revival of the classical American folklore in the early 60s and then like in that 1964-1965 like evolution era they clashed cuz the the electric music that's produced after that is also highly like comparable to folk and blues. Right, it's kind of like Almost like a hybrid of the two. Yeah, exactly. So if we're really like trying to be anatomical about like the creation of rock and roll, rock and roll is separate from kind of what happens after 1965 because it's where rock and roll starts really blending with the blues and folk rather than being than them being so isolated from each other, which was kind of the way it was previously. Well, I think that was it was isolated by design though too because it was is kind of one of those punks versus heavy metaler guys you know like yep. you can't you can't have both both <laughs> what yeah and now here we are with with various forms of punk metal <laughs> i'm not even gonna go on on that because yeah. i could go on forever for that well, and then forget what we're talking to, about you're gonna have to wait a few more seasons before <laughs> we get into punk stuff but ian's getting antsy in his chair just because i mentioned the p words so. <laughs> 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 Well, and so with this tour that she did through Europe, she ended up releasing an album from Arhuli Records. I think that's how, how it's pronounced. Arhuli. A-R-H-O-O-L-I-E. That seems like Arhuli. Yeah, right? And it was called Big Mama Thornton in Europe. And, <laughs> that's the name of the album? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's straight to the point, I guess. Yeah. And she was uh, backed by Buddy Guy. Oh shit! But yeah, guys rocks. I know he's good. And so, what year was this? You said this was during the, the revival, right? I, yeah, this is 1966 when this album came out. Yeah, so the the tour was probably the year before. Yeah, and so this seemed to kind of get some momentum for her. She ended up recording an album called Big Mama Thornton with the Chicago Blues Band, also that same year. That would, oh, and she's only in her mid-30s now at that point. Yeah, like, pretty much. She's only about our age. That's not even that old. Yeah, and this album actually had Muddy Waters and Lightning Hopkins on it. What? Yeah. For real? Yeah. Why does nobody know about this lady? She's, she's supported by some of the best musicians, names that we really carry with us, like 
Buddy Guy and Lightning Hopkins, like, those two names carry so much fucking weight, and they're playing backup to her. Yeah. Why don't we know this name? I know. Like, this is amazing. When I found this out, I was like, seriously, she played with some of the biggest blues legends at, like, the other than B.B. King, the two biggest legends. And, like, it two kind, of the three, it, really, were on this freaking album. It honestly, and it's the, so sad for me to have to vocalize this, but it's so obvious that she got shut out just for pretty much being black, female, and, uh, you know, lesbian. Yeah, she was shafted for sure. Like, that, uh, sorry, that that just literally blows my mind that, that she could play with such talent and for yeah, me to and, have no idea who she is. Like, And we've listened to the freaking songs. I mean... The fucking songs speak for themselves. Yeah. They're amazing tracks. Yeah, like it's not and they like were she... you could tell they were experimenting in the studio too. I mean, even with these guys on there, they'd have tracks where the uh yeah, the that's guitar what... solo's buried in the background and so it's just this whisper that f- I mean, it's amazing. It's yeah. cool. It would bring them back. I smell a rat. That fucking mix. That wasn't something anybody was doing at that time with the weird toms coming through super high like yeah. I mean, it sounds like a fucking like a dark, like a, I, I don't even know what genre to apply to that. And that's well before any of those experimental genres come out. And so in 1968, she ended up releasing this album called Ball and Chain. It was basically just an album of original work by Big Mama. And Lightning Hopkins was also on this one. Oh, well, so was Lightning Hopkins on that on that song? Because we listened to that song earlier. I, I think he was on the whole album. That would explain a lot of why that, that guitar riff was so spicy. Because yeah. it, was, it was good. It was really, really good. Yeah, and in fact, this album would get her more notice from rock artists. Like, yeah. uh, not, not fans or people who listen to music, rock artists. It sounds like she's like one of those things where we talked about earlier, an artist for artists, where yeah. it's not necessarily the commercial appeal is there, but not to the same extent as some other people. And that's literally just because she's a lesbian. Yeah. And even the title track for this album, Ball and Chain, would end up becoming a signature song for one of Big Mama's great admirers, Janis Joplin. Oh, yeah. I wonder oh. if that is any connection with like that Sublime song, Ball and Chain. No. No, I would assume no. No, No, I think that one goes more towards, like, the social D version, social oh, okay. distortion. Yeah, so I, I, I honestly, we'll get on to all that stuff someday. We're not, let's not, let's not get into too but much modernism. The subject matter is completely different, and it, the style's way different, too, so. Yeah, I can't honestly remember what the Sublime song sounds like. I just kind of remember the name and it being present, so. <laughs> Well, and so back to Janis Joplin covering the song Ball and Chain. Which is a great cover. Oh, yeah. This became a regular in her set. So, you know, she would end up, you know, like introducing other musicians to her just because of this song. It makes sense. I mean, fuck, we listened to it earlier. And I'm sure I'm going to, I'm stealing yours right now, but let's just do check it out. There's a live performance of this song by Janis Joplin available on the internet for free that is fucking fantastic. All right, let's get to the dude check out the song. Yeah, I, just, was, I just was gonna. Double, I know I'm I'm ruining I had your day one like more usual. Point, but dude, check out both these versions of Ball and Chain. They both fucking rock. Personally, I think Big Mama Thornton's is better. Yeah. But Janis Joplin takes that, and you can't even tell it's a cover, which is the best way to do a cover song. 
Yeah, exactly. It, the, and that's really the, if you're ever wanting to cover somebody else's song, don't play the notes they play and sing it the same way they play. Play your whole new song and just take your, your the, present the song the way you would have presented if you wrote it. You know what I mean? Don't, don't steal every line. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even if you're covering like a rock song that's known by people, give it some sort of twist that makes it your own. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's what makes it a, a an homage versus ripping somebody off. And that's also just what makes it an evolution in music, really. Yeah, no, exactly. And so that's one of the things that I don't think a lot of people realize. A lot of people don't really feel like they're good at music or whatever, but... Everybody who listens to and plays music, even if they only attempt to do so, contributes to the global evolution of music. Right. If you have a specific type of genre you like and you listen to it a lot, you're helping the evolution of that genre by increasing its popularity. Therefore, increasing the amount of bands that are going to be into You know, it's just like the stuff that you like, man. (laughs) And so in September 1968... After the album, came, after her Ball and Chain album came out, Big Mama Thornton ended up appearing at the Sky River Rock Festival. And get this, dude. This lineup included The Grateful Dead, James Cotton, and Santana. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. She's playing with these people and we still don't know who she is. Right? <laughs> it's just like, or let's, like you said, she's a musician's musician. Like, everybody recognizes how awesome she is. So they're just like, fucking get up on stage. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's that's one of the things that really makes it at least not as painful. Was, she still gets her success because, well, if the Grateful Dead are, like think that you should be on the stage with them, you're a good musician. Regardless of your decision of their flavor or whatever it may be, if a big, you know, like Santana or anybody wants you on the stage or sharing a stage with them, that's fucking badass. Yeah, and so with the 1970s, you know, she'd end up recording some more stuff. She'd end up recording an album Saved. She's back. Jalen Sassy Mama, you know, just recording whatever she can, you know, just all like more of that Lightning Hopkins type blues stuff. And I think this is a good time to kind of bring up my last dude check out this song, which is really just like a bunch of her songs throughout her career because I honestly at times couldn't really figure out where to place it. And so I was just like, so you this know, is like a montage. Yeah, of exactly. Check out this song. Yeah. And so we've already mentioned this, but I smell a rat. Yeah, we, we mentioned it a whole bunch of times, but I'm going to say if you only do check out one song, dude, check out I smell a rat because I feel like that is nearly the most influential on rock and roll itself well that and really like check out that song and her version of hound dog because honestly you really got to see where hound dog came from because it's a way better version than elvis anyway yeah i'm actually inching elvis slowly to the asshole spotlight right now and i have no good reason for it that was the big (laughs) asshole spotlight really and then her song let's go get stoned yeah that was that we listened to that earlier that was awesome that was a really good yeah just just a slow blues or just classic. Yeah. Just let's go get still. I mean, it speaks for itself. Yeah. Little red rooster. I mean, she does like a bunch of farm animal sounds in it. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> dude. Yeah. She makes, a, <laughs> she makes some really fun, like vocal melody or vocal, like representations of animals, a lot of cuckoos and cacaws or whatever they were. And, and there's some dog barks in there again, too. Yeah. Oh, she's probably whooping. Whoop, whoop, fucking whoops, man. <laughs> <laughs> dude i'm afraid of the whoops 
the deviants are outside there whooping. <laughs> the song Laugh, Laugh, Laugh is probably the last one that I ran across that was really close to like a traditional rock and roll song. That one's really awesome. And then she does that traditional slave song, Wade in the Water. Oh, yeah. And she does, she, oh my God, this, this is probably the best fucking version I've ever heard of this song. This, it's like backed by like this heavy blue, these heavy blues lines. But then she sings like Wade in the Water, like, you know how it was traditionally sung. It's yeah. fucking cool. It's so cool. Oh, man. We didn't, we actually didn't get to that one before start. Well, I'm going to have to throw it on my list for afterwards. Yeah, you got to listen to that one. I forgot to mention it while it was, uh, you know, reading up on how to do this episode. Yeah, exactly. Born under a bad sign. I mean, song speaks for itself. You know? Is that like the Bart Simpson? Born under a bad sign. With Wait, a blue what? moon in my eyes. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, Bob Simpson does a version of that on there. Like, I think it's like, okay, I, I'm guys, this doesn't come from my research. Once again, we had this to come up in our last season. This is just straight up from my memory. I believe Bart Simpson does it. We're looking it up right now, Ian. Ian, come on. We're doing this All right, live. Getting, getting to the internet. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Why, yeah, because Born Under a Bad Sign, it's also the one, or that's the intro from The Sopranos, and also Bart Simpson does a version of it, if I remember correctly. Ladies and gentlemen, I do apologize for a temporary pause of forcing Ian to listen to Bart Simpson's version of Born Under a Bad Sign. We will be back momentarily. It's actually by Homer Simpson. Oh, no, it, it totally is Homer Simpson. My memory failed me. Sorry, guys. It's Homer Simpson, Born Under a Bad Sign, but it was 100% yeah. that song. Well, it's a cover of Albert King's version which she does her own version of the song. You don't even realize it's the Albert King song because she, like she's done throughout her entire career, take a song and make it her fucking own. Yeah, no, exactly. So so hers was a cover of an Albert King song then? That's what it looks like, oh. yeah. See, I didn't even really, I didn't put it together, honestly. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. I've never actually listened to that song before. I'm going to go have to put that on my uh, list. And the last dude check out the song I got for this episode summertime oh yeah which she does her own fucking version of that i mean yeah we talked oh, about making a version your own this this yeah, version this is, is not like any any of the standards you've heard of no summertime. it like goes between like two different like melodies between the whole song it's really cool yeah the changes are drastic and really well like executed so it's it's a delight to listen to it really is and just when you're about to get bored of that change, he goes back to the original version too. It's like genius. It's like it's like okay, I'm over this, and then it changes, and you're like, oh, great. Yeah, and the, but the changes are so far apart to where you almost like feel naturalized to each of the the yeah. rhythms and tempos. Like it's like a new song again, and then you're you it, they hit you with the like the reprise at the end of the intro melody, and you're like, Psh, I don't know. It's it's as, awesome. As somebody who composes music, it's one of those like exactly perfect moments and so we went way off track there but let's get back to big mama thornton after you know a lot of her notable recordings in the 70s her drinking kind of started affecting her you know her voice wasn't quite there but i mean we've said this so many times is it the drinking or is it the age i mean come on. i mean i guess she wasn't that old she was in her 50s so it must have been 
The drinking. Yeah. I mean, I could. uh, uh, It seems like the drinking, especially like in this era with drinking a lot of like heavy liquors, I I feel like they were drinking a lot of straight liquor and it was burning out their vocal cords. It's not quite the same as like, you know, having a beer or whatever it may be. Yeah, but they were also just doing night after night after night in shitty little clubs with terrible PA systems, you know. Well, not to mention... Not to mention her singing style, which she really wails. Yeah, and and if we're... Okay, so anybody who's just starting out singing wants to be a musician, here's something that you should know. Take care of your voice. It sucks. It sucks when it starts to fail, like, you know... Being somebody who has a deep voice like myself, when my voice, like, fails, it sounds really bad, and you can hear it. And I wish I would have taken care of my vocal cords when I was younger. Tea and honey after every show. Do it, vocalist. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just the reality there is, like, you know, if if you drink a lot of liquor before you go up and play, especially if you drink like hard liquors and things that dehydrate you a lot. Yeah. Well, any li- any even beer, I yeah. notice it with beer. Yeah, well, yeah, because then you get like that dry throat, like sadness. Yeah. But either way, if you're drying your vocal cords out and then performing, that's a uh, about ten, twelve thousand times worse. I'm not. I'm. You know, those are those are not that, real is, statistics. Is that a scientific? Yeah, that uh, was a study. There, they did a study ten or twelve thousand times. Dude, check out that study we just made up. <laughs> yeah, just check out that those percentages I'm just making up off the top of my head. No, but really, just guys, don't don't sing with dry throats. It's bad for your vocal cords. And we digress again. But in 1979, her health was getting so bad, she had to be led to a bandstand at the San Francisco Blues Festival. And despite her illness, it was said that she gave a stunning performance. Well, it really comes down to when these events happen, a lot of musicians do this. Regardless of what's going on, they give some, like, amazing performance because they know their performances are coming to a very small amount of numbers. You know what I mean? So Well, and you know, it's one of those things where she knows that her talent is coming to a close and you just got to go 100%. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's all you can do. Yeah, it's it's much like anybody coming to the end of like a like a big arc in their life or some career or you know what I mean. They they want to finish strong and even if they're not like quite what they were previously, a lot of people will push through the pain as it were and you know, just do what they can to really finish as best as possible and a lot of times end up hurting themselves a lot worse in the process. Yeah. And it seemed like around this time her shows were getting fewer and farther between at least notable ones anyway. Uh, and in 1983, she would end up surviving a serious auto accident, but she would get out of the hospital, rally, and end up performing at the Newport Jazz Festival with Muddy Waters and B.B. King backing her up. I can't believe we actually brought up the Newport Jazz Festival or Jazz Festival again somehow. But that's like <laughs> super badass. But she actually played it this time. That's fucking super badass. Like. Getting in a big a car accident and just getting out of the hospital and be like, fuck it, I'm going to go play with Muddy Waters at a fucking festival. And this show actually ended up resulting in a live recording called The Blues, a real summit meeting. Oh, because of like all the, the big blues names that were involved? Yep. And so on July 25th, 1984, in the City of Angels... Willie Mae Thornton would end up dying of a heart attack at the age of 57. Oh, that's too fucking young. What year is it? 1984. Oh, man. Year before I was born. Yeah, I was going to say she she died just a year or two before we were born. That's fucked up. 
I mean, she does say in a few of her songs that she's 300 pounds. So, I mean, yeah, that probably has something to do with it. Not trying to like fat shame or whatever, but yeah, that's it's still unhealthy to be that large for a large amount of time, especially if you're maintaining a drinking habit and staying up late and not taking care of yourself. Those compound themselves pretty, uh, pretty heavily. And so she would end up getting buried in Inglewood Park Cemetery in Los Angeles. She was led by her old friend, at this point, Reverend Johnny Otis. Many artists showed up to pay tribute. That's all I got. I couldn't find, like, a specific. It just said many artists, but... You You can expect that the crowd was there. But later that same year, she'd end up being inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. After she died? After she died. Posthumously, but within a year? Yep, that same year. Jeez, that hurts. That is just so fucked up. Like, why make her wait till she dies to go? Like, It's I, almost sure... like that thing where it's like a lot of people don't recognize her till after she dies. Because you know when like a major artist dies in our day and age, all of their recordings spike, every all the listens spike of that artist, and then people remember why they listened to him to begin with. Yeah, for sure. But it's just such a shame, like... I don't know, not only breaking, like, moral and cultural barriers and also coming up with just amazing blues music and putting together a few of these puzzle pieces that are going to give us the greatest, like, form of music that history has ever seen for humanity. Yeah. Like, all these things that she contributed fucking ain't nothing but a hound dog, man. I mean, that's all you got to say right there. She She started rock and roll. That was, you know, that's like Elvis's freaking number one. I I just really hurts my feelings, like, down deep. The fact that she had to fucking die to get what she deserved the whole time. Like, listening to this music, she is clearly, like, was capable and probably was capable of doing more if given a better chance and was never given a better chance because of some social bullshit stigma, you know? And I'm not a big person to to preach, like, morality in any form, like, because I honestly believe that people should be able to do what they want to do regardless, you know? Your lifestyle shouldn't affect my lifestyle and vice versa, whatever. But the reality is nobody should be held back in their artistic pursuits because of a fucking social thing, like, regardless of what it is. And the quality of the music she did... She should be mentioned up there with Muddy Waters, Lightning Hopkins, BB King. I mean, we should be mentioning them as on. a side note. I I honestly believe after listening to just the music we've listened to and talking about what we've talked about, we should be like, hey, do you remember that badass Big Mama Thornton track where Muddy Waters was lucky enough to play with her? Like, right. this should be the situation we're discussing here, but it's just not because of you know, just prejudice bullshit. So you know this. We're not even the last thoughts yet, but that's my first thoughts. Go fuck yourself if you're a prejudiced bitch. Go stand in the uh, asshole spotlight with Elvis. And on that note, with her being gone and her being ducted into the Blues Hall of Fame, I think it's time for last thoughts. What do you think, Pat? I think that is most appropriate. Please, I, I mean, this time I would like you to go first. So where I go with this on the last thoughts is it's like, She literally sang the biggest song to ever be recorded among rock and roll artists before it was even fucking rock and roll. And then Elvis comes along, swoops in, and makes way more money. She sold 2 million copies and then got 500 bucks for her effort. 500 bucks. Yeah, it's the 50s. So what? The math on that's bad. 
she deserves to have been fairly compensated for her efforts, especially since Elvis covered her version and then made so much money. He made a fortune. He's still making a fortune off of his name today. It is not even him anymore. It's just ridiculous, man. Like, I don't know that when I saw that, that pissed me off. Just the disparity of the, of the differences between the amount of money they made. It's like she made a recording that essentially started rock and roll and got no credit for it. I don't even know how to put it. It's just like, it's the most unfair thing that has happened in rock and roll, especially to that point. Like it hurts I mean, my feelings. Like it just it pisses, didn't, even, it it didn't pisses me off. Yeah, exactly. It didn't happen to me. And it honestly hurts my feelings. Like when I read this shit, like what the fuck is wrong with the system that we exist in? If that's the case, like doesn't everybody know that makes music worse just on average do we not understand that the best artist making the best music making more better music is better but it was it was safe for white people pat yeah well we're both white people and fuck that yeah that, i would much much rather have big mama thornton any day she deserved the fucking millions and elvis ripped off way too many people to deserve, to deserve the money he got and it just, I don't know, it seems so unfair to me. Like, it just, just seeing that, that one stat right there just pissed me off so bad when I did this episode. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's it's not okay. And it's just making things worse. I, I can't even explain it any farther than that, but it's just bad, guys. I mean, that's pretty much my last thoughts, dude. What do you got? <sighs> Well, I mean, you couldn't have, or I couldn't have covered that portion of it any better. So I'm not going to harp on that anymore. Besides, uh, just you know, my my constant mention of any asshole or bigot in the entire episode can just shuffle themselves in the asshole spotlight, and just will not talk about that anymore. I'm going to talk about something positive for a second. The reality of what I see here. And no matter the fact that she didn't get the recognition that she really deserved and the, the record sales were not what they should have been, the name recognition is to the floor compared to what it should be. You know, a lot of people can't name blues musicians from the 60s in the modern era, and that's not a problem. Not everybody has to like everything from every era. I'm not a, I'm not a purist or a, an elitist in that way. I think anybody can listen to anything they want. But if you weren't listening to that kind of stuff, would you really be listening to, did you check out the song? Yeah, no, well, I mean, yeah. I, I hope that there are people listening to this from every possible genre of music, but in all reality, people who listen to this, you know, podcast are probably more likely to like older styles of music, and that's great. That's fine. What I'm getting at is when you contribute even small parts of music, you contribute to the whole. And so even though she didn't get a recognition and she didn't get all the things that she really deserved, she contributed portions to the greater puzzle that cannot be recalled. Like if we're thinking like a game or a puzzle or something like that, she put ain't nothing but a hound dog on the board. She's the person, you know what I mean? Like she is the, the one who set out that piece, the one who put that corner piece in the puzzle that would eventually be fucking rock and roll. Oh, yeah, she was an intricate part in it, really. If you were to, like, you know, think about time travel movies, send somebody back and have her not, like, be anything, rock and roll might be different. Rock and roll might not be what it is at all. Rock and roll without, ain't nothing but a hound dog. What if that shifts a large amount of people not listening to Elvis? And what if that's a, you know, a huge amount of understanding on what rock and roll could have been? Like, 
these small contributions that people make to music have so much impact that I don't think everyone really appreciates it. Right. That song was like literally the blueprint to rock and roll too. You guys got to go listen to the song because I mean, if you hear it, you're going to go, doesn't sound like rock and roll, but it is rock and roll. That song is rock and roll. And no matter like if you're a metalhead, if you're a blues guy, if you're if you listen to progressive math rock, whatever, like indie kids nowadays, anything that you may be, it doesn't matter. You wouldn't have what you have without these building blocks. It's like it would be a house built on no foundation. It wouldn't last the winter or whatever the you know expended or the the extended metaphor here is, but. The reality is these things are so fucking important to things that you care about. It's your job to give them just a small amount of reverence. I mean, without this, you've got no cream. You've got no deep purple. You've got no Led Zeppelin. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you've got none of the 80s music, no cars, nothing like this started it all. Yeah, and, and so, you know, you could obviously argue one way or the other that one person's influence or one song's influence might not have been enough to shift an entire, like, growth through a genre. And I'm sure there's so many wide opinions that anybody could argue any one stance in this point of view, but can't argue the simple facts in it. Contributing small parts to music, even if you never get even a moment's recognition for it, even if you just inspire one person, have one person enjoy your music, have one reaction anywhere, you have contributed because that person carries that on in their perspective and it continues to build. So, you know, if you need to break some music rules to have some fun, go fucking do it. And if you don't get the recognition as a as like an epic musician, that doesn't necessarily mean you didn't help. Yeah, exactly, and we're going to cover so many more artists that help evolve music to where it is today, and I mean, that's the whole point, right, is we're trying to discover where music came from and where it evolved from. I mean, it all came from somewhere, and here's the secret with musicians. There's nothing truly original, just an idea that is slightly like a quarter turn from where it started. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's music is their inspiration plus their evolution, and that is their final product. And if if you realize that, like, it's okay to, in quotation marks, copy something because you're not really copying it. You know what I mean? Don't play the exact same notes and do the exact same mimicking. Make it your own, like we talked about with covers earlier. But what you can really do with any portion of music, any style of music, is it's all interchangeable. Take a country song and make it a rap song. Take a rap song and make it an electronic song. Take an electronic song and turn it into a folk song. It doesn't matter. None of those boundaries are real. And the boundaries that we combine to move forward just create new things. I think what we're really saying is music's got no real rules. It's got its theory, as we've talked about before. Almost to a painful degree at sometimes. Yeah, but if you got music in your soul, just fucking do it. Yeah, I, you you don't need anything. That's the funniest part. Like, w- the more you learn music, the more you realize none of the rules matter. You just have to learn what other people learned first. And then, like, the, the longer you play music, the less rules really matter. So get out there and just do it. Have fun. You know what I mean? Make If it sounds good, you're having a good day. The end. And on that note, I honestly think that's a good way to wrap up this episode. 
So if you enjoy this, please share us on social media. Let your friends know. Yeah, give us ratings on things. Tell people that you like us. Whatever. We love you. And thank you for listening to Check Out This Song. I'm Ian. I'm Pat. Good night. Bye-bye.